Man, that was pretty good for 9.30 in the morning. I'm going to tell you that right now. So amazing. Ryder can be off in a hospital somewhere, and the show goes on. And what, what a great team of volunteers we have up here. Thank you so much for sharing your heart with us. They come in yesterday at 2.30 and practice for Saturday night, and then they're in here before you're even rolling over in bed, and they're practicing in here, and this is an offering that they have, a gift that they've been given. I'm giving it to you, and aren't we glad that they're using their gift to encourage our heart. I have two boys. I had to go over uh, the seas to get them, but I got these two boys from Ethiopia. And I have adopted them into my family. Anytime I hear that in one of our worship songs, it just means something to me. To give them my name. We didn't have any boys that were going to carry on the Holdridge name. And I had already closed down shop. I mean, the risk, of another, the risk of another girl was not worth the possibility of a boy. And some of you know what I'm talking about. So it was, I had already closed the shop. Welcome, come again. You know, that whole thing. Turn the... Turn the, you know, welcome sign to sorry we're closed. And, uh, but I, I just always thought about that name, that name Holdridge that my dad gave me. And um, I, I want to just say that the boys, it was about a week ago, they had a, what's called a horrible, not so very good, bad day at school. And if you pick them up and your teachers are saying, hey, they were on, you know, yellow or you know, purple or calico, or I don't know, all the different things. I'm listening for blue or green. That's what I'm listening for as a parent. And they were nowhere near blue or green, and uh, Joshua acted out, and I don't know, he pushed somebody off the top of a slide, and, and uh, he was in the principal's office, and, and Caleb was just being Caleb. He's just that way. And so then they came home, and if that wasn't enough, they added insult to injury and just treated their mom poorly. They weren't obeying. They were just, uh, just being ornery that day. And so I came home, and I got to hear all the stories after my day of work of how horrible the boys had been that day. And I had had it about up to here. You know, I was still breathing through my nostrils, but the water was about up to my top lip. And... I just was kind of frustrated with them, and I just knew it was, I was going to be putting them to bed that night, and just to have an, uh, just some admonition, some encouragement, some man-to-man time with my boys. And quite frankly, it was fleshly father night, is what I call them. I was the father acting in the flesh, and I just wanted to get in the room, get them, you know, go to the bathroom, brush your teeth, get in bed. I'm going to shut off the light. I'm going to leave this room. If I hear anything out of this room, I am going to rain down the wrath of all the masculinity I can muster tonight upon you too. Something like that. And there was... A moment where I was about ready to just really, really cleanly just get in, get out. Do you know what that feels like? Don't look at me and judge me. Like, okay? Like I'm the only one that's felt like this. Okay, don't judge me. So in that moment, though, I I looked at my two sons, and they have in their room a plaque, you've been called by a new name from the scriptures in the Old Testament. And something shot into my head, and I thought, "These, these two young men... They have a purpose. Now, they don't know they have a purpose. They are not living on purpose, with purpose, right now in their life. 
Um, they don't understand the existential reason for their existence, but they had a purpose. And in that moment, they were called by a new name. And I just looked at Joshua and I said, Joshua, do you know your last name? And Joshua was like, Joshua, <laughs> no. Bobby, nope. Caleb, do you know your last name? Caleb, Caleb Charles, no, Bubba, no, not, not that. Your last name is Holdridge, Holdridge. I know that name, yeah, that's your name, Holdridge. And do you know what my last name is? Jason, no, no, dad, no. My last name's Holdridge too, you know, Eureka, sort of an epiphany. We both have the last name, seven and five-year-old boys. Our name is Holdridge. Do you know what grandpa's last name is? My dad's last name? Grandpa. Pop, pop. No, Holdridge. He's a Holdridge. His dad was a Holdridge. He passed down the name to me. I was a Holdridge. I didn't have any sons. I went over the sea to, to find you guys. We renamed you. You took on my name and we're the Holdridge boys. And they started like, yeah, we're the Holdridge boys. And I said, in this house, we're the only Holdridge boys that are in this house. We got a band together, boys. And they're like, yeah, we're the only Holdridge boys. You're going to carry on my name. The Holdridge lineage is going to go from white to black, but you're going to go and you're going to spread out my name because it's more important that the Holdridge name gets out there than I, it's white. Amen? <laughs> That's for sure. And I said, that, that means something to me, guys. And they're sort of glossing over because the Holdridge name means something to me. There's sometimes I don't do things and do things because I come from parents that gave me that name and I want to honor that name. And I said, we don't want to be known in this community of Lowell in, in certain ways. I don't want people to hear the Holdridge name and to be thinking mean or uncaring or, you know, naughty. What are some things that we want to be known for? And Joshua says, love. I said, Exactly. Caleb, what do we need to be known for? And he said, responsible. <laughs> you don't even know that word? What? Okay. Josh, what, what, what should we be known for? Kind. Yeah, kind. Go over to Caleb. What about you? Respectable. <laughs> and safe. And I'm like, in the world and I, I go back over and Joshua said strong only to find out the next day I go to Bushnell and I drop him off at school that's the values of Bushnell <laughs> I thought he was like man this guy's wise beyond his years no he's not he's just parroting back Bushnell values you know I said I don't want the Holdridge name to come up and for them to think liar cheat mean angry. I want it to be those words you describe because we're the Holdridge boys and that means something. I said, say that with me. We're the Holdridge boys and that means something. Hey, get in here. We stacked hands. We're the Holdridge boys and that means something. And we just, I, I'm getting frothed up, you know, at night before bed. Not a good idea. And the girls are outside like, what are you doing? And we're in there just getting halftime pep talk. We're the Holdridge boys that mean something. It was funny. I come down, 
uh, the next morning and they were there eating cereal and they said, dad, guess what? I was like, what? We're the holders, boys, and that means something. And I'm like, yes, it does. Do you remember what it means? No, not at all. Okay, we'll keep working on it. But it just hits me, this idea of having purpose that, that everybody here, we're someone who comes from somewhere that means something. Everyone here is someone who comes from somewhere that means something. My boys, they have a purpose. And I want them to live a life of significance. And I want all of us here to live a life of significance. That's a big deal. And this last week of this purpose-driven series, we're going to look at the fifth purpose, which is made for mission. Finding our ministry in the church, how we're wired to serve the church is great. But today it's like how God puts us on mission to find out how we're wired to serve the world. It wasn't for God so loved the church that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's for God so loved the world. The world. As I was studying this last week, um, the day I was studying, it was October 11th, and I remembered 13 years ago when I came to this church on Monday, October 11th, 2004. And I, I call it the, the Holdridge missional move. We moved here um, with the dream of mission, being on mission. I remember being captured by the mission and vision. It was only the one year uh, birthday of this church when I came that fall, just being captured by the back of the bulletin and, and it was in its fledgling form but this, this mission statement, this vision statement on the back of the bulletin said this, we exist to engage in the movement of Christianity through becoming a band of Christ followers who raise up other bands of Christ followers by reaching for un- and de-churched lives, we call them undies, in the outlying metro communities throughout West Michigan and beyond. Now then, we hadn't planted any church. This was just a dream. Anybody remember this? Were you here for this? Yes. No churches, this was just pie in the sky. This is the mission. We're just gonna bleed out for this. We're gonna give our whole lives to this mission. I'm like, that seems really big and I wanna be a part of something big before I die. I don't wanna just be in ministry and just kick the can down the street and then really kick the can. That, and stand before God like, great job kicking the can your whole life. And we left Bell Fountain, Calvary Baptist Church in Bell Fountain. I'd been youth pastor there for eight years, and all the students that I loved there, and we left a great life. We left great friends. It was a higher paying job. It was a great house with a low mortgage rate. We just went to 15 a year. It was just amazing, successful student ministry and a comfortable position to leadership. And we left it all to pursue a life of mission. <coughs> I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to just be in ministry anymore. I want to be on mission. I want to love and help humans, not just Christians. And it was a pivotal moment in my calling. I just was tired of traditional ministry. I wanted to be out there reaching people that really had need in the trenches of humanity. I remember Heidi and I would meet people in Bell Fountain and 
meet him at the Y or different places and they come to know the Lord, we'd have him to our house, but we wouldn't want him to come to our church. We're like, go to this church down the road. You'll connect with them. There's great things happening down there. There's life. There's energy. I think you'll really understand what's going on. And that's when it hit me. You're not in the right church, dude. If you can't like reach people and then invite them to your church, you're probably not at the right place. It was a great place. It just wasn't where God wanted me with my shape. And so my heart began this pilgrimage to find a place to be on mission for God. And I got connected with this church and Phil and I had a mutual friend. And 13 years ago, we came up here. It's funny. I remember the candidating process. Phil met me down in Toledo, Ohio at a Max and Irma's right off of 8090. He was whining and dining me, man. Uh, only could have gotten better if it was the Cracker Barrel. So I remember meeting him there and he talked about the church and what they were doing and what they were going after and the mission of the church and he gave me some of you know this data and this information and I was captured by it and the way that I remember him talking is we believe in the 10-10-80 principle which is 10% we give to church planning, 10% is sort of tithe or save and then we function on 80% of the budget. Uh, for the remaining, you know, operation budget. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty audacious. And what I heard is this radical idea that not only were we going to take a massive pay cut, but I was going to have to talk to Heidi about giving 10% to tithing, 10% to church planning, and living on 80% of my income. And I drove from Ohio, you know, Toledo, back down to Bell Fountain, and I told her that, and I said, but I love the mission. I just want to be a part of that so bad. And isn't it crazy that I, I was ready to tie 10% of my income to impact, give an additional 10% to church planning, live off the remaining 80%, which was already 7,000 less than the salary I had as a youth pastor in Ohio. That's how much I believed in our mission, and I still do. And it was a bit of relief about two weeks into already being here and already moving here where Phil was like, no, 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 that's not for people. That's our church. We tithe 10% to church planning, save 10%, and then run off of, you know, 80% for our operational budget. I'm like, so we don't have to double tithe here? No. And I was like, honey, this is amazing. We got 10 more percent in our budget. What hit me is even though I didn't have to double tithe, I was ready I was ready to. That's how much I was starving to be on mission. Last week on Saturday, I was here listening to John's message on shape, and then the next day, I decided to go to a couple of our church plants. And I went over to Grand Ledge. They were at a milestone of their year birthday and was there with Steve Hubbard and their team and they asked me to come up and pray, and they said, could you pray over our zip code and all the surrounding zip codes that we're trying to reach? What a powerful time to be with them. And I finished that service in Grand Ledge and went up 96, because there was another cool moment is our first church we planted in 2006 was Epic uh, Community Church. While we were building the space that you're sitting in, while we were building that, we were planting a church in Portland. And they're 10 years old, and they were given a church uh, in the last six months in Eagle, and they renovated the church, and they were doing what 
what's called a preview service or sort of a practice service where they can work out the kinks technologically and the kids check and all that stuff. There's supposed to be 30 volunteers there to start this campus. I come in and there's, there's cars on the grass and in the parking lot everywhere. And I walk into the building, it's packed to the back to the brim with people in Eagle, Michigan. And somebody forgot to tell the community it was a practice service because they all showed up. And I was like, oh my goodness. And I, I keep remembering the dream of we're here to be a band of Christ followers, to raise up other bands of Christ followers, to plant churches in the outlying metro you know, community of Michigan and Grand Rapids area and beyond. And I'm like, it's happening. It's happened. It's just so crazy. We've had four church buildings given to our church plans to us in the last three years. The Wells Church was given to them. Down in West Virginia, they had a church this last year given to them. They went from 80 people to like 225 people in four months. We just had a church given to us over in uh, Eaton Rapids. Uh, they had five kids in their um, children's ministry and 35 people coming to church. They, had la- they launched in six months, two weeks ago, had 135 people there and 35 kids in their children's ministry. God just keeps blessing your efforts and you're giving to this. 10% because of that original vision of everything you give is for multiplication of churches, for a movement. That captured me. That was mission. In the beginning of this book, A verse that's always meant a lot to me. Isaiah said it this way. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say to me, singular, whom shall I send and who will go for us? There you see that God is one and that God is three in one. If you've ever wondered about a verse on the Trinity. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Isaiah responded, here am I, send him. Here am I, send them. Here am I, send yourself, God. I've heard a lot of stuff that you've done all by yourself. Why in the world are you asking for other people to join you in the mission if you wanted to get the job done right? You do it yourself. Jesus said mission this way. He used the word sent. He said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Say that with me. So send I you. Say it again. So send I you. I've been carrying the mission. I've been living it out. I've been showing you what the gospel looks like with skin on. I'm getting ready to leave, and I'm leaving this mission to the church. And the way that he sent me, I'm going to send you. It's a moment Jesus is handing off the mission of loving, healing, teaching, reaching, and saving people to us the church. He was sent and fulfilled his mission. And when he said on the cross, these words, it is finished. What he was saying is when I was 12 and my mom and dad lost me in Jerusalem and they found me and said, what's up, son? I said, I had to be about my father's business. I knew the business that I was on this planet for and he bookended his life and at the end said, I'm finished. I was set out on mission. I knew what I was made for and I finished the task and it's over. Now I'm giving you that mission. It is finished. What's finished? The mission God sent us for. I want that to be said about me and I want to say it about my life when I get to the end. I knew what God put me on this earth to do and I did it. I was sent and I went and I knew my unique finish line and it is finished. It's critical we understand this. 
that we are partners with God. I call it the glorious collaboration. And throughout the scriptures, people are crying out to God to move. And throughout the scriptures, God is crying out for people to move. And I think both are necessary, which brings me to the title of my message. If you want to write it down, if anybody writes anything down here, it goes both ways. This is truly a relationship, not a dictatorship. I want to show you how we should be desperate to cry out to God to move and how he's desperately crying out for us to move. I want to first talk about us begging God to seek and save the lost. Heroes of the faith down through the ages have done this from the get-go. And we even started the fall season last year going in the campaign with a verse from Joshua where Joshua was telling the people to get ready for God to move. In Joshua 3, 5, he said this, let us consecrate ourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among us. Not for us, just among us. You're gonna have to do some stuff and God's gonna do some stuff. You consecrate yourself, he'll do amazing things among us. You got some things to do, he's got some things to do. I wake up every day and I try to pray this prayer. God, today I wanna do what only I can do so that you can do what only you can do. There's other passages where people are crying out to God. Isaiah 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I love that. For when you did awesome things, we did not expect you came down and the mountains trembled before you. To rend the heavens is rip it like a sheet, Lord. Just rip open the heavens and bust out and come down through the heavens and do things that we would never expect in our wildest dreams. Blow our minds. Do things that we could never anticipate. Surprise us, Lord. When I come into church last night and into church this morning, I get here early and I pray. And one of the things I pray is, surprise me, Lord. I know the programming. I know the songs. I know the notes. I know the choreography of how this is supposed to go. But I want you to brush, you know, blow your fresh wind and fresh fire and fresh power into my life and to surprise me today, even with things that I say that I didn't even study. Somebody just cry out for God to do amazing things that you could never expect. Habakkuk said it this way, Lord, I've heard of your fame and I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. I love this. He's like, I've heard of all the fame and all the renown and all the deeds that you've done in the past. And I don't mean to be kind of a sourpuss about that but I wasn't there for that that's all just been hearsay and I'm grateful you did a lot of great things in the past for other people but can I be so bold as for you to hit repeat and to renew the same things in our day to show up in our time our generation our culture and make stuff known I don't think we need any less of that than Habakkuk felt in his day I think we need God to rip open the heavens and come down here and repeat a bunch of powerful things that he did. Not just powerful in physical ways, but we need the saving power of God in people's lives. Daniel said it this way, Lord, listen, as if he wasn't listening. Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act for your sake, not mine. My God, do not delay because this city and this people bear your name. He's in exile at that point. It just makes me feel like what I do to my boys, like grabbing his face. Lord, listen to me. Lord, hear and act. 
And don't delay. We can't wait around any longer. This has got to happen now. For your sake and for your glory, do this. Because we bear your name and we don't want you to be a byword to the nations and the very people of God to be a byword to the nations. God, don't delay. We need you now. You got to move. Aren't you the missional God? Aren't you the one on the move? Move again, God. These are revival prayers. Maybe you're so like underneath so much junk in your life and your business and your little empire and your bean counting and your 401k account and your Dow Jones industrial average, you know, just obsessing over sports and all this stuff and nobody's crying out for the stuff that matters most. Exodus 33, Moses said it similar, don't delay, but he said it and it said elsewhere uh, in Exodus, Moses would talk to God as a man talks to his best friend. He said, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't even send us up from here. Don't send us on any mission. What else will distinguish me from your people and from all the other people on the face of the earth? Now show me your glory. Now, don't delay. Now, not tomorrow. Not in a couple days, may I be so bold as to say, I ain't going nowhere unless you go with me. And so people have been calling out for this. I mean, you can see it in the Edemic covenant. You can see it in the Noahic covenant. You can see it in the Abrahamic covenant. You can see it in the Mosaic covenant. You can see it in the Davidic covenant. Covenants are made all throughout the Bible, and they're all if and when. If and when it's relational if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will i hear from heaven and will heal forgive their sins and will heal their land that's a covenant this has got to be both of us interacting with each other co-authoring co-laboring together in this collaboration if you will i want you to know god wants to act on our behalf, but God's also wanting us to act on his behalf, to be on mission with him in this world because it goes both ways. He wants us to do it with him, which probably monkeys things up quite a bit. I would imagine because it'd be easier if he chose another way to spread the good news by just doing it himself, but he didn't. And he doesn't believe the phrase, if you want to get the job done right, you do it yourself. I know this feeling I know when I have a project at home, when I'm out doing wood, and I want my boys to come out and help me in the project, they don't mind co-anything. Co-laboring is a problem for them at this juncture. (laughs) Labor of any sort. They love playing. They love just getting energy out there. They, They have all the energy in the world for play, but not work, not mission, not things that matter. I mean, so we'll, we'll get wood, and I'll like, here's another Skittle for the wood that you just brought over to the cart, and here's another Skittle, and I'm like incentivizing stuff with Skittles. It's crazy. And I'm like, well, let's just go out and get the garbage at the end of the driveway. And we had a long driveway we share with the Coopers, and so we walk to the end of the driveway, and I'm just carrying it. He's like, Dad, I want to do it. I'm like, you will, but only for about five seconds. And so I give it to Caleb, and he's like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. Give me the thing. And then Josh, like, I'll do it. And he's trying to push it and hitting trees and he can't see. And I'm like, if you turn it this way and then he's this way, I'm like, no, you can grab this way 
And I'm teaching them how to do something so simple. And then Josh was like, well, it's hitting my heels in the back. And I'm like, give me that thing and get out of here and go play. This was supposed to take about five minutes and we're about 25 minutes in just getting the garbage. It's way harder to collaborate. So when God chose that that was going to be his medium, his mode of operation, I think that tells us something, that God's like, you know what? I'd rather it be a little bit more messy, but to do it with you than to do it for you. I want relationship. Not only does he not believe the phrase, if you want to get the job done right, do it yourself, he doesn't espouse the popular phrase I heard growing up, God is going to do what he wants to do with or without us. No, he's not. I just tore some theology up in this place, but you haven't read the Bible. There's a lot of things God wanted to do that he waited on humans to do that they didn't do, and it ended in destruction. He doesn't always intervene when he gives us a chance, and then we don't show up, and it's like, well, I guess I'll show up in the last sec. There are tons of things that ended in destruction because people didn't stand in the gap. When Jesus left this earth, the church was not this plan B. When he ascended to Acts, in Acts chapter one, he was declaring to the world, the church is plan A and there is no other plan. The church is the hope of the world because it is my body on earth, my face, my presence on this planet. And heaven is counting on us to put skin in the game. And it may surprise you that, to know that God's always been pretty open about how much he's relying on his people to show up and be his tangible presence in this world, to collaborate with him, to seek and save the world together. So it goes both ways. We're crying out for God to show up and move. God's crying out for us to show up and move. And I want you to see some scriptures where God sort of rips open his chest cavity and, see, and you see how strongly he feels about and how much he wants us to participate in the mission of redemption in the world where God, in essence, is saying, show him now, you show me your glory. You show me what you got. You, you want me to show you my glory. I want you to show me your glory because I put glory in your heart to be shown. Second Chronicles 16.9, it says this, the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the whole earth to find those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Just sort of scouting and scanning and looking which ones, which ones have the fire in their belly? Which ones can I see like this potential? Which ones are hungry for me? And he's looking for those people to recruit. Jeremiah 5, 1 said it this way, go up and down the streets, look around and consider, search through the city squares. If you can find but one person who seeks the truth, I'll forgive this city. It doesn't have to be everybody in this room today that hears what God has to say. It just has to be one person here that after God searches through the squares of the city, finds that person who's fully committed to him and says, I'll save the whole city if one person will show up. Zephaniah says it in a different way. He says, at that time, God said, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and discipline those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. What's interesting is our theology about who we believe God is leads us to our activity. When you believe in a complacent God, you become a complacent Christian. When you believe in an ambivalent or indifferent God, 
you become ambivalent and indifferent and neutral and complacent. There's no, A.W. Tozer said it this way, there's nothing more important than what comes to your mind when you think about God. Because what you think about God is how you're gonna start living on mission with your life. Let me tell you something, that's, that's not how I wanna be known. Impact won't do nothing, either good or bad. Well, at least we didn't do anything bad. We erred on the safe side. We stayed in the happy, crappy medium. Ezekiel twenty-two thirty, God said, I look for somebody among you who would build up the wall and stand in the gap on my behalf, and I found no one. Man, he's looking. Can you see him looking for someone? Just one to save the city, to stand in the gap. And he's just looking for people today. He's scanning to and fro throughout this audience, looking for hearts that are committed to him, to join him in the mission. That's why I love the verse. And I heard the Lord say to me, who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said back, here am I. Send me. I'm your boy. I'm your boy. I'm the one you've been looking for. A.W. Tozer, I mentioned him earlier, he said this, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity when we plan only things we can do ourselves. If you ever want to know why our church rabidly is going after the expansion of the gospel and the multiplication, the spreading of the word of God, is because we want to do impossible things that we know we could have never done without God. And we want to keep reaching the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one. Not everyone. It isn't like important if it's a crowd. It's, it's important even if it's just a person to God. And I met a person in the last several months who's been coming to our church. And his name is Cherenjeev and just got an opportunity to baptize him a few weeks ago. And I want you to watch his story of the people that are sitting next to you have no idea who's sitting next to you and what God's doing in their heart and the difference you make and your story makes in intersecting with their story to bring them to Christ. Check out this mission story. Uh, my name is Charanjeev. Uh, I've been coming to Impact over a year now. The first time I heard about Impact was from uh, Corinne, she, she's my, my wife. At that point, I was really broken and hurting a lot because of some personal issues in my life. Somewhere in, inside me, I knew that I needed God's blessings in my life because I can't do it anymore on my own. Uh, so I decided to come and join a service. And uh, ever since that first service, uh, I've been coming every weekend to Impact. Coming from Sikhism, uh, I was trying to believe in whatever I was saying because it was making sense to me, but it was, I, my heart was still not there. I really believe that when I was practicing Sikhism, uh, it, it almost felt like a secret society because uh, yeah there was a spiritual side to it but nobody was talking about it nobody was sharing it nobody was sharing the word of God and what's expected nobody was concerned 
about their fellow fellow members. But then uh, I started seeing these videos of people who are real with real struggles and how Jesus Christ's name have saved them. And now they are totally different people. And uh, it was this one video of Big Joe which touched me the most because it almost felt like that it was my story. And uh, after the video, I met Big Joe and I congratulated him on his journey. Ever since, I, I could relate myself that there are other people, same, just like me. After listening to the pastors and reading the Bible, I, I realized that how, how important getting baptized was because that is the way of you acknowledging yourself to people that you have joined the family of Christ. I was trying to really grasp the idea that how I'm gonna be a different person from that day because that's what the idea of baptism is and that's what it teaches you. After I got baptized when I was dunk in the water and I came out, I did feel that a weight has been taken off from me. Now, from that day onwards, I'm going to be a different person. And I'm never gonna be that guy anymore. The church has tried to encourage everybody to join the life groups and the importance of life groups. I was hesitant that if that's for me, if I'm gonna be accepted in the life group, I wasn't sure what would be the expectations of me. After joining the life group, uh, I, I had this, the, the doubts I had or the, the insecurities I had uh, were thrown out of the window just from the right of the bat. From the first session onwards, I felt like I was a part of the family. The host family, Barry's, made us feel so welcomed that I could open up to them because I felt that it was, it was necessary for me to open up to them so that I can have things which has been bothering me and which has been keeping me away to become the person I wanna be. And I was able to share those things in such a small time with my group. And, and the best thing is the, the, the acceptance they showed me. And then after that, the stories they shared of their experiences in their life made me realize that I'm now different and it's okay to be like that and you're still loved. I'm very excited about our new building coming, coming up in the near future and it's not just about the building or the size of the building. It's about being able to accommodate people who are out there searching for something. Being able to provide that as a church 
is our is our moral duty also to experience what we all have experienced attending impact with my brokenness he has still accepted me with my imperfections he still loves me there is people out there sitting in the church right now with me too who has struggled who has faced things and have been saved by Jesus Christ i wanted to be that person i i wanted to be complete it's a work in process but i have been seeing tremendous difference in my life as a human being and how i treat other people how i see people in general and how i see myself also um, that everybody has a purpose in this life Sharon Jeeve here this morning. Where is he? Buddy, can you stand up? I just want everybody here to acknowledge. Here is the dude right here. Yeah, man. So proud of you. Um, Sharon Jeeve's uh, grandmother, was it yesterday, passed away or on Friday? A couple days ago, and that was uh, the last grandparent. So he's just kind of been in a state of mourning. Family means a whole lot to him. Um, but man, your story is just such a powerful story. He actually came to know Christ, asked him, when did you really give your life to the Lord? And he said, it was when I read the second chance book and I read it through the second time and just seeing those stories of people and their changed lives. So we just celebrate your life today, buddy. I love what he talks about, like it's our moral duty our moral duty as believers to be thinking about the next one, to not get so comfortable in our seat that we forget about making enough seats for other people. And I, when you said that, I was like, man, I've never even thought of that in those terms before. So they can experience the love and life of Christ and find and follow Jesus. Last year as we headed into our Through the Roof campaign, which is the next couple weeks, I remember sharing a quote It's undergirded me through this whole year and continues to galvanize me in the final days of October in this match point season as we're calling it. Erin McManus said, what endeavor could we undertake that would be so reflective of the heart of God that even failure would be success? That even if we just fell short and failed and fell on our face, that it's like we tried because we believe in a big God. And so we're just making big plans and praying big prayers and living big lives for God because we believe he can do the impossible. And he's on mission. He has invited us to be on mission with him. And uh, we're interacting and co-laboring together. As we're asking for an encounter from God here, he's asking for an endeavor from us because it goes both ways. I want you to stand up. We're going to sing this song that God is able. Just turn to some people, give them a hug, a high five, and just say, we're in this together. We're in this together. We're in this together. Just tell a few people around you, we're in this together.